The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Yeah, because the nice thing is when I, when I get a, a cold, 
suddenly I sound very cool. I got this like deep <laughs> thing and I can, Hey, I'm a superhero kind of thing. And, uh, it'll be gone in a couple of days. I hope this, this cold was, um, it's like over a week now. Uh, and it went through all my kids. Everyone gets it. It's yeah. a sore throat and then it's a fever and then you get better for two days. And then you get this ragged cough out of nowhere, and then yeah. and then it drags out, right? And so I think most of the students have this right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. what is it? Is it is it Omicron BA two variant? Is it my my wife calls it the croup, and apparently a lot of people it's the croup, which is just an old slang for cough, I think, or something nice. like that. I don't know. Outstanding. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 better today than it was yesterday. Um, you know, I do you know that I have sleep apnea. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. getting cold, getting sick when you have sleep apnea and you just you have the nasal p- pillow, not the full face mask thing, that's a challenge because now you're trying to have this machine shove air up your clogged nostrils. Yeah, and, and sleeping can be a real pain. So that's I'm looking awesome. forward to getting out of this and back into back into health at some point. I went to jujitsu today and my lungs suddenly yeah. were, like, <gasps> you know, all, all over again. But <laughs> anyhow, that's not the question. But I thought the listener okay. might, might enjoy that just a touch. Um, I don't yeah. know that I have a question set up. Uh, we're we're gonna be um, coming back from some education talk that the, the listener will have heard last week, and right. we're trying to get back into uh, World War One as context for our current collapse, because that's really what we're always about, is how do you put yourself yeah. in the history we're in right now. Of course, we want to let the listeners know that in the next several months, you're going to be on the move as well, yes, and so we may yeah. have a few other kind of drop in and out weeks with some special content or no content at all as we make that transition take place. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, World War One and J.R.R. Tolkien sounds like a great place just to just to start. I mean, uh, the idea yeah. the idea that World War One came out of excuse me that that uh, the Lord of the Rings um, and Narnia to some extent came out of Tolkien and Lewis's right. experiences, I think, is is really worth pondering. And I hope that we don't become prophetic because the reason that we started focusing on World War One was because of what people at that time recognized as its epochal significance and and the significance that Carol Quigley recognizes that it has, as opposed to, I think, what is the founding myth of our current world order. I don't know how new it really is anymore, but our current world order, which is about war as a force, especially when prosecuted by Americans, as a force for assuring the moral righteousness of the entire world. And that is, of course, part of the story, as we've talked about, of how America got into World War I. My hope is that we don't become prophetic in the sense that we cover World War I, and then things that we'll cover after this are, for example, much of the somewhat hidden history of the Spanish flu epidemic, as well as the worldwide depression, not the one in the 1930s, but the one in 1919 through 1921. And much of that is forgotten. My hope is that we do not become prophetic in the sense that we have something not necessarily uh, biological, not necessarily virologically analyzed, but certainly economically and financially disastrous. Although I fear that we are 
already there. I mean, it sure looks that way. Uh, yeah. Aldi, Aldi Germany is like raising prices by 40% on 300 goods uh, this week. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I'm, I'm hearing stories from the Quad Cities area of, of more and more empty shelves over there. Um, someone, someone shared with me that since I'm in Illinois, they'll try to keep us happier longer since we're the home base for a lot of these, uh, these evil <laughs> leaders. But I, I don't know if any of that's true. It just, I keep thinking one of these mornings, I'm going to open up my phone or my, my iPad and I'm going to, I'm going to look at the news. And it's going to be, yep, finally, it's here. Here we go. You know, this is the real thing. Right. But but that that keeps kind of hanging off, too. It keeps staying obfuscated. Yeah. It, well, the shortages question is an interesting one because both anecdotally, but also historically, hinterlands do suffer first. So they are, and I, and, you know, and and many of the listeners either, either are or are aspiring to homestead. And of course, I support that. This is just for your planning purposes is that you will probably lose things first. So when Germany is, as we discussed before, under blockade in World War I, the humanitarian crisis of which Americans were not aware because those were just savages destroying the Belgians, as we discussed, the rural areas are going to suffer first. So even just comparatively, Indiana has higher gas prices in many places than Illinois right now, which is almost never the case because of Illinois' enormous gas tax. Right. But when there are shortages, you are the closer to the center of the empire you are, generally the better you will be supplied, at least for some amount of time. That that's not a reflection of, okay, yeah, ultimately all of that is fragile. Cities are fragile. Yes. And we've discussed that. And so hardships in cities are very fragile. That is right there in the Aguirre book about many of these hardships being experienced roughly 20 years ago by the Argentines. But when we think about parallels, we're going to see in the depression that happened right after World War I, that cities are sites of political unrest, but they also are the last to collapse because of the stakes of letting an entire city collapse. Right, right, right. That, and there's already a there's already a backlash with that on what is now euphemistically called public safety, even in San Francisco, right. which I would like to begin to distinguish between between sincerely leftist cities such as San Francisco, and I think insincerely leftist cities such as Los Angeles. Because my contention is that you don't get the LA riots if <laughs> most Angelinos or the city government sincerely believe that criminals are just misunderstood. <laughs> so, huh. but even in sincerely leftist places such as Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, you're beginning to get a backlash against the idea. And Amazon has begun to exit a, I want to say, 300,000 square foot office and, and distribution center in downtown Seattle because of the, because of simply the danger. So we, we are in a very unstable situation. I, I think that that will become much more economically unstable, but the, the parallels are there. Part of the reason that we're talking about combat in world war one today is because I want to provide a take that is a little more nuanced than if you had to read All Quiet on the Western Front in high school, as I did, and you learned that war is simply awful and should always be avoided. Yeah, Red Badge, Red Badge of Courage kind of did that for me. Yeah, Red uh, Badge of Courage, right. Take, yeah. on, take on the Civil War. And so 
what's going on is not that people come out of World War I affirming that war is uniformly good. So the three figures that I've chosen for today, partly because they're from three different countries and partly because their stories are all accessible in English at this point, are J.R.R. Tolkien, Ernst Jünger, who wrote both Storm of Steel, but also novels about World War I and novels about many other things, most of which are in English now. And a baseball player called Christy Mathewson, who was at his, in his time very, very famous and famous for also refusing to play baseball on Sundays, despite being probably the best baseball player, certainly the best pitcher in the National League at the time in the pre-war era. And I chose them because they have three very different stories. And that even if we're not headed into a ground war, which, you know, God forbid, obviously on this podcast, we do not want you know, the Florida National Guard troops who have been in Ukraine at various times in the past decade to die there, much less anyone else. They have three very different stories. And I want to start with Tolkien and just with a misunderstanding, which is that somehow Lord of the Rings is about either of the world wars, that it's somehow a kind of more or less allegorical tale. Right, right. Well, uh, you could go right on. Yeah. and, and, And I think that that relies on not just a, an ignorance of World War I, which was, even if you're just reading Quigley, who never covers anything except the financial system at great length, he's very dense in anything, so you're going to learn something. But even Quigley will say, and, and Ernst Jünger is clear on this too, that the, the combat experience of the average man in World War I was nearly uniformly horrible. Huh. Casualties were extremely high, tactics were extremely backward for the technologies being employed. And so men are dying at rates that are really unthinkable and in quantities that are really hard to conceive of. So in a couple of months in 1916, between the two sides of the Battle of Verdun, you're looking at more than a million casualties. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. The meat grinder, just the meat grinder that was going on. It's ridiculous. You You can't fathom it. You really can't. And it and that that kind of abstraction also on the Eastern Front in 1915, it's estimated that 1.7 million Russians died. Not not just that they were casualties, which just for purposes of clarity could mean that they were wounded, right? But then what is the medical care like, right? But that 1.7 million dead, and you'll get similarly enormous numbers of Russians on the Eastern Front in World War II. And I think what's happening is that partly because most people became cognizant of the Lord of the Rings after the Second World War, and after the sto- after that war was described in such a way that it was valorous, and the people that fought in it had been termed later on, at least in American media, the greatest generation, that it was remembered as if you have a shining cause, that will make all of it easy to bear. And that's so now you're going to have a meme about millennials that they're not able, unlike their grandfathers or great-grandfathers, really, if we're being honest about the timing, they can't charge the beaches of Normandy, right? And these people just put up with everything, and it was amazing, and they did everything valorous. And that relies on the same magical thinking about the Second World War, but about maybe war generally, that it will be a redemptive experience because of the cause for which you fight, And that is a certain way. And I do think the Peter Jackson movies of the Lord of the Rings tell it this way, 
Whereas if you experience not, you know, in the course of the time that it takes to watch a movie, we will get to destroying the ring of power. But in the time that it takes to read all three books, which is a much longer time, of course, you will develop an immense fondness for those with whom you are engaged in struggle. And that is not only what Tolkien says in his letters, both at the time back to Edith Bratt, his fiance, but also at the time and after the time when he recollects the meaning of the war and his very good friend C.S. Lewis will speak in similar ways, especially about the man who took the brunt of the shrapnel that wounded Lewis, but killed the man, is that the experience of struggle, especially of struggle that could be your death on any given day, is not so much maybe redemptive, making it somehow all worth it, but is the primary, the greatest good that comes out of such an experience. Tolkien therefore doesn't have to derive some sort of transcendent cause in the name of which violence could be prosecuted, right? He is a Christian and the traditional Christian understanding of war and James Burnham is helpful on this also in his book, The Machiavellians. We've talked about him with his other works, but The Machiavellians where he, he, tr he's, he tries to maintain that they're the last people who believe in limited purposes for war. I don't have to be in a war because that war provides some kind of transcendent morally justifying cause every single day. There is in this, I think, a much greater realism than what most of us were taught about war on the basis of a certain understanding of World War II. That is that you have an almost divinely sanctioned cause and then you engage in a war. It's also why we're taught what is simply historically inaccurate, that our civil war was prosecuted in order to free the slaves. It simply was not on either side. It, it, it just wasn't. That was a collateral effect later on, but it, we, nobody got into that war to free, maybe to keep slaves, but certainly not to free. So if you're looking for a transcendent moral cause, it was not there. So you can definitely observe this about the American ethos um, that we, we want to believe we're doing it for a good reason. And yeah, that's right. Even, yeah. even amongst the far left right now, that's still as, 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 as crazy as their good reasons are, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, um, right. They still think this somehow is about justice. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that therefore you have to valorize people who are otherwise sort of grimy people. And you can never, you can also never admit that you're getting your hands dirty so I, I think this is very interesting about how the left interprets the actions of the CIA, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Latin America. And they will, they, will simul they will do two things simultaneously. They'll be upset that the CIA was supporting right-wing causes, which it was doing largely as a reflection of our policy of containing communism. But then they'll also be upset that we were not as we were elsewhere at times, especially in Africa, because Africa underwent decolonization at that time, we were not unambiguously supporting leftist causes. So they're upset that we're dirty, but then they're upset that we're not dirty enough. And there is something, the, the realism that is here is the recognition that you find, so in something that would be familiar to the listener, even if you've only seen the Lord of the Rings movies, 
the recognition that the ring of power has to be wielded at least as long as it takes to destroy it. But that while you are doing that, there is something involving and, and potentially evil inside of you and inside of it that could collude maybe sufficiently to destroy everything. Hmm. An incapacity to recognize that both dirt has to be, you have to put your hands in dirt and that that could hurt you because there is something in you that likes it as you're made more than, yeah, right. I mean, there, and I think the lack of realism here may be also in us as Americans, because I mean, we even got into world war one for a great shining cause. Yeah. Well, in I mean, it, it's in us as Americans. And then um, not to be too insular, but it yeah. the, as Lutheran church, Missouri synod Lutherans. I mean, talk about the gospel of respectability that you introduced a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and I mean, it's all about the just cause, right? And this yeah. kind of this belief we can somehow walk through it pristinely. Yeah. Which then means we never do what needs to be done or yeah. we end up doing it, but quietly and in a corner where it eats us from the inside and destroys the soul rather than, you know, taking it to the, to the mountain and throwing it. Right. In. Yeah. There, there is. And I, and I don't know what this is and I observe it in at least the half of my family that is not from Appalachia, where I think people are just a little bit more open about their dysfunction, honestly, is that the other half of the family, which is, very Yankee is high achieving, but sort of can be, can be in its moral stances, very priggish and unself-aware about that. And so this strain has always been there, right? And it's there in the fact that the people who determine the shape of our country, certainly after our civil war, but I, I think both sides speak in this way during our civil war, cannot simply say that we're doing what is most realistic that that something something definite needs to be achieved this amount of territory needs to be taken this 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 problem needs to be taken care of we can't live under these conditions by contrast honestly are all of our frontier wars from before our existence as a nation down to the point where california oregon and washington are securely governed by the united states of america that our frontier wars are very kind of concrete you will either exterminate us or we will push you away. And there is something, and, and that, that gets denounced very clearly without knowledge of who was killing whom or whose babies were being dashed upon rocks and so forth. Those wars really very simply, and we don't even know their names, King Philip's War, the Pequot War, the various wars against the Nez Perce and Idaho. We don't even know the stories of these things except to say that we, quote, genocided the Indians without understanding what the stakes were on both sides. But those are much more classically in view of certainly the Christian church's understanding of what war could be defensible because they are wars of self-defense, such as all the tribes were fighting with one another before any Europeans got here. It is the wars that are really classically speaking, least defensible and most abstract that we both learn about and are told were fought for shining causes. Hmm. So even where the Civil War has concrete interests at stake, relatively little of which has to do with the welfare of Blacks in the United States, whom the Republican Party largely wanted to literally send back to Africa 
that was the colonization scheme that was favored by Lincoln and many others before the war began, we are told that they were fought for shining causes. And what I love about the Lord of the Rings, which is not an allegory of the First World War, but it does reflect Tolkien's experience, is that what you want to do most of all in a war is to stay alive <laughs> and that you will bear very great love to those people who keep you alive and whom you keep alive. And that that is an enormous force that will be a force for wonderful things, specifically in the Lord of the Rings, the destruction of the ring, but in his own life, simply staying alive and getting back to England and, be and beginning to build a life thereafter, that those wonderful things will be ensured by the fact that you love those who, with whom you fight. And that in an, in an average human life, I'm not really sure that you need something more transcendent than that. I, I, don't, I don't need some enormous story about the reason that I love these people with whom I fight is because we were fighting for some great good that 20 years from now, some politician's going to get up and talk about for 25 minutes. I don't, I'm not really sure that I need that. And I think that you can see this also in the role of veterans organizations after the First World War, also after our Civil War, and the building of memorials. The reason for them is not necessarily or always that there was something marvelous about everyone who was involved. I think that that is, that is a luxury that descendants have. Very often, the reason for the organizations, the, the American Legion, the Grand Army of the Republic after our Civil War and similar organizations is simply to be together again with the people with whom you fought. And that is really enough. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that everything that you did and everything that you were and the reasons that you went were all correct and wonderful and that you kept the world safe for democracy or something like that. Well, I, isn't it true that ultimately most of the people who are on the line don't have a choice there, I mean, there are some people that sign up, right? But by sure. the time you're yeah. on the front line, you're fighting for survival. Cause that's, that's, it's all you can do. Yeah. You're there and you have to, um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to struggle to get this question out. Uh, Cause it's, no, it's kind of foggy in my head here, but, mm -hmm. um, so it seems to me, first off, I love, I love the bit about, so shared survival is the formation of brotherhood, regardless of the cost. That's, that's really powerful. Um, it seems to me that the current manifestation of the spirit of the left wants to have its war without a war. Um, it, it is unable to um, perceive this good that you're talking about, survival itself, where it will punish the victor for being the victor because the victor won and that was bad. And mm -hmm. yet it needs to win to further its own cause and mm -hmm. i don't think any, if that didn't make sense i don't think anyone's going to say it doesn't look like the left's eating itself to death it, it is just eating itself to death it cannot uh, stand on its own it's cutting off its own legs and it's going to take everything down with it and that's what we're all concerned about and but somehow i think this this uh this concept is there that they they both need to fight, must fight, must fight for a glorious cause, but there's no cause that's actually glorious and it punishes, um, punishes the just causes. Um, again, I, I'm not sure I got that out at all, but any thoughts? Okay. So yeah, because I, I do, I do not think that this desire for the bright shining cause 
it is it is not unique to the left. And this this is this is one example. We've talked about exceptions to this, but this is one example where the left right spectrum is unhelpful because it means that the right gets sucked into the same paradigm as the left, which has cultural leadership. So I think it is it is a very it, it is a modern formation of power. That's a phrase from a guy. Many of the listeners are sick of book recommendations. So the guy's last name is Assad, only one S in, in that Assad, Talal Assad. And he's very interested in how different religions structure social power and political power. I only find that other people that went to religious studies departments know about this guy, but I wish he were broader known because it's, it's illuminating. He'll tell you why Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United States, although they're all technically allied with each other globally, are very, very, very different places to live and also to operate politically. So those different formations of power mean that somebody gets to decide how the whole question is going to be structured. So for example, you said, well, most people don't have a choice. And that is certainly true in World War I because you're dealing with conscription. That's true on both sides in our civil war. That is technically speaking, not true Although I would contend that it's very, it's rather patently obvious that the military recruits very heavily from our most urban and our most rural parts of the United States, because those are the most hopeless places in the U.S. And the 17-year-old who is shown a way to be respectable and good-looking, and the girls will like him, and he'll get to do fun stuff in the Marine Corps, and has never been given any better ideas by anyone will of course heed those things. So choice is, choice has, let's say gradations. And so he gets there and then he figures out that yes, he's getting to do some of those fun things. He looks good in his dress blues, but now he is here to ensure that Afghan women who don't want to vote can vote or whatever the cause du jour has been determined to be by the current administration in view of what just happened in the midterms or something. And that is also, I think, how the the right sort of behaves like that 17-year-old. The right thinks of itself as needing to come up with bright, shining causes. That, I hope, is growing to be less so because now we are appealing to much deeper notions such as truth, rather than let me convince you that what you really want to fight for is not, you know, (laughs) social democracy in Cuba, but what you really want to fight for is, you know, capitalist democracy in Iraq or something. No, now we get to appeal to, well, we're not going to sexually groom your children. And that that's a different formation of, of both power and political discourse And that is something that I think we have often allowed ourselves to be outflanked by the left and claim that somehow we are immoral Mm -hmm. or we don't care about the suffering of Ukrainians, of whoever, of the Belgians in World War I or whatever. And when you refuse to engage in those, let's say, narratives of victimization, you are risking something politically because you're, you're... you know, maybe you're going to be portrayed as a monster, but maybe you could also appeal to people's concrete interest in 
we don't, we're tired of sending people to Vietnam or we're tired of being lied to, or we're tired of our children being sexually groomed in public school or whatever the case may be. So I think when you have an appeal to something that if not a self-evident truth is the closest thing to self-evident, you have a stronger long-term position if you are able to maintain yourself in it. And that is the thing that, that is the power of the group that gathers to destroy the ring. It, it is not, it is not that they have a monopoly on information. It is not that they have a monopoly on power or the capacity to exercise power or to project power. It is that they are able to stick together long enough to achieve what they know needs to be done. And they're otherwise enemies, right? I mean, yeah. they're bringing together the, uh, a disconcerted bunch who have no native love for each other, but they are, um, they are compelled to understanding because of what threatens them. Right, 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 exactly. And that's something that is, can be found also in the experience of people like Tolkien, as well as Lewis, who, and this is less true for Tolkien, because Lewis is raised with greater privilege, partly because unlike Tolkien, Lewis's father does not die when he's young. And so the, the Tolkien family is sort of forced into hardship is that Lewis gains a familiarity with and a fondness for people from other social classes, which is the closest thing that Britain in 1914 has to regional and, and ethnic and racial distinctions that the United States has always had. So they are not united by you know, melting, let's say, into a, a, a oneness that they didn't have before the war but they are united by the desire to survive. And that is a very powerful thing. Not necessarily always, because notice that Tolkien neither experienced nor wrote about, and then they all went back to the same place and all became the same. And the hobbits then like to behave like the elves, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't happen, but war with a limited purpose for a limited specific good can be prosecuted honorably by honorable people. That's a very different vision from Junger, who experiences war as both a refining fire, but also as the revelation of a solitude he didn't know before the war. So this is really interesting because Junger sees struggle and specifically combat, not just the struggle of you know, surviving the trenches as a condition of life, but the struggle of combat as a refining thing that brings out the best men. I think that that is half of the truth. It's also true that the great and the brave and the noble seem to be cut down. This is certainly what everyone who writes about it says is that our finest men are cut down on those battlefields because they are out front, because they are sacrificing themselves because of whatever, but, but Junger also sees it as if you survive, you will be great. Now, that presumes that you go through combat. He's not taking into account everyone else in society who survives because, like George W. Bush, he flies planes on the Texas Air National Guard during Vietnam and doesn't go to Vietnam. So he doesn't think about the survival of the bureaucrat and the truck driver and the cook and the guy who gets an exemption or something because he has flat feet. 
And this is interesting because what re is revealed at that time is that Junger going back to the Germany that we've discussed before, going back to 1920s Germany, isn't looking for some kind of redemptive solidarity with other people. For him, war and combat specifically will reveal what he calls the anarch, the anarch, who is not like an anarchist in some kind of politically philosophical sense or is not, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails at tanks. The anarch is the man who can survive those conditions of life. So this is interesting, right? Tolkien is looking for and then writes about projects a vision after he's invented the languages and stuff, right? Because he does it all sort of backwards. Tolkien is looking to have a group of people who can unite for some limited good and then return to life and ensure the continuation of life after that limited good has been achieved through, if necessary, violence. Junger is not looking for that. Junger's vision is much more like certain kinds of American Westerns where the man finds the violence that that condition of life affords, either there's relatively little law or it's combat or whatever. And he never, it's not just that he comes back and he's not the same. It's that he can't even go back again. There's nothing to go back to, right? The, the world itself has been changed. So this, I think, is also dependent on the fact that Junger goes back to a defeated nation. And when the nation is defeated, when you come back, not only are you a stranger in the sense that any combat veteran will be strange to those whom he loved before, but who did not go through those things with him. But also, if he comes back to a defeated nation, he comes back to something that seems like it, he, he can never belong again. And when, when you think about that relative either to the American experience of that, is to you know the American South after the Civil War. It's also maybe some of the alienation that Vietnam veterans experience when they come home. Although some of that was actually said already about Korean veterans, that the nation was indifferent in a way that it had not been with World War II. But when you come back, who will you be? And who will your people be? And, and what will your home be? And if you come back and your home has been starved for four years, as it was to Germany in the First World War, also in the second, but for longer, then the nature of return is really hard to say. I mean, it's, it's not even the kind of just the personal alienation that just to use the Lord of the Rings again, because I know that's probably better known to people than World War I and its particulars. It's not even the alienation that you see with like Bilbo Baggins and he never quite belongs again and he wants to go away and wants to take a trip and so on. It's the alienation of you come back and everything is destroyed. And so Junger's vision for the future then doesn't involve other people. And that's something that as we get closer to the present and the stories that we're going to tell, I think you're going to see more and more often is I... And I think this is paradoxical. And I know that the listeners are trying to create communities more like the Shire than like Germany after either world war, but don't be prepared to find at least, and be prepared to expect to find more of Junger's anarchs, because I think a lot of men have lived this way over our past 20 years in the United States. And I think we will find more of them because they, they have survived but they are 
as it were, homeless. It's interesting. Um, listening to you talk about that, it, um, I felt like you were describing me and just the mm -hmm. last two years, last two mm -hmm. and a half years and how, you know, now I drive around Rockford and, um, I got my family. I got my job. It's a church. It's a good church. There's a lot of good things. So, so don't, 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 it's not an all black pill here, but, um, I drive around Rockford and I just, I just look at the cars as I'm going by and I kind of glance at people. And I just, I feel like I'm on an alien planet and I, I and I wonder what's going on in their heads and are, are they awake or not? Um, are they just going along with all this and how long can we just go along with all this? How long until it gets really bad? Um, yeah. this, this is, this isn't where I grew up. This isn't what I, I thought this place was, you know, I know the Oscars have kind of lost their glory for a lot of people, but people still watch movies. I don't. And it's not just like, I hate the television, although I have my theories about that too, but it's, it's actually mm -hmm. just about, I can't, I just can't, um, I can't get comfortable. Uh, the, the whole thing feels, uh, post-traumatic and, and part of that then again is like, so now I, I feel like I have not isolate, but, um, I want others who, who see that we can't be what we were, that we aren't what we were and we have to be something different. And yeah. I feel out of place cause I just, there just isn't a lot of that. Um, of course mm -hmm. I, there are some guys around here and we talk about this kind of stuff, but, but th we're a very small group of people, um, compared right. to, you know, Rockford, Illinois, uh, where everybody again is just going to kind of go on with this new reality post uh, false flag or, or post color revolution uh, post it all changed and we're not the America we were everyone else yeah. is just going to go on conquered um, and, and yeah it's very a, a tremendous feeling of not belonging yeah and that has been developing for a very long time it can even be tracked in our elites who down to and through the second world war will if America is engaged in a war, will themselves volunteer to be in it? You know, and, and some of that was always a little fake and, and not everyone always volunteered. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt's dad got an exemption. He paid a man to replace him in the Northern draft during our civil war. And I think Teddy regretted that always and tried to make amends for it. Teddy loses a son mm -hmm. in the first world war. Both his sons go to war. Uh, one survives and thrives. But I mean, you know, and, and, and there were always maybe lies about these things too. Um, if you compare the actual records of what happened to John F. Kennedy in the, in the Pacific during the Second World War, it's, it's a little shaky to line it up with what he said happened. But most people have no idea that George H.W. Bush was the sole survivor of a rather horrific incident where downed American airmen were eaten by Japanese troops, and he was the only one to escape that. He suffered real things for the United States of America. And whether that was right or wrong, or we should have been at war with Japan or whatever, I'm saying they had a sense of solidarity with their nation that they obviously no longer feel because these people's children don't die in these wars. So it's not only that when we have, as we do, not only an oligarchy, but basically a gerontocracy, the old ordering the young to die, maybe by famine from shortages, but maybe also by war in Europe. When we have that, you could at least ask them to put their own children and grandchildren on the line, but they, they haven't for a very long time. And 
We've talked about that before. That sense of alienation makes the future of such a nation, a polity, a group of people very uncertain. And now, like you said, that is breaking down also for us, the little people, not only for the oligarchs, the sense of identity, the sense of attachment. I remember my hometown being festooned in yellow ribbons, physical yellow ribbons, not just magnets on cars during the Gulf War, which is my first really political memory because I was worried about my dad getting sent there. But everything was covered in yellow ribbons. That identification with the United States that I grew up with, many of the listeners are too young actually to have grown up with that, but, but I did and I'm not that old. That's going away for all of us. So I think the question is next, what replaces it? And what replaces it is yet to be seen. And it's really a very large topic, but also a recurring discussion on this podcast, as well as others, because we all sense that things are reforming and we don't have control over the fact that that's happening. We only have control over what we do about it. And I would like to encourage people to develop not only participation in whatever does remain as long as it has some impact on your life, but also participation in thinking about what could endure, not just remain maybe, or what parts of the building will still be operable when we let the top several floors go, but what new buildings could we build because we're not coming back to anything stable. Right. So we are not in the same position that anyone was in after the first world war, but this, I mean, the, the stakes haven't changed. I think the extent of the stakes have changed. So rather than having, you know, a certain number of volunteers go off to war, or even before that, a certain number of draftees go off to war and then come back, but it's supposedly stable. Right. So think about the problem that Rambo encounters when he comes back to the United States. It's not that that little small town is full of people using meth and about to collapse, right? Rambo's alienated because they don't get what he's gone through. That's one problem. It's a very different problem to say he do they don't understand what he's gone through, but he doesn't understand what they're going through because they're all on drugs and inside all the time and their souls have been captured by Netflix. I mean, the... We have instability also on the home front beyond what was going on with world. I mean, inflation happened in every country that fought during World War I. We have that, plus our souls are being radically changed every day by media or by wondering what it means if I send my kid to school or if I don't, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're going through, Jonathan, is something that we're all going through. And if we go through it together, then it could be productive for us. If we go through it alone, then maybe one of us will turn out to be Ernst Jünger. We'll write really beautiful books, but then we're going to die and that will be it. <laughs> because <laughs> the stakes for this are, you know, and this is this is my just sheer nostalgia for certain kinds of America that either are gone or are slipping away. And this is I mean, we're getting we're getting close-ish to the end, so I want to make sure that I tell this story before we do is the story of Christy Mathewson, aka The Christian Gentleman. That was his media nickname. And that was partly used, I think, maybe to convince Americans that they should go out to the ballpark because before, roughly the 
10 or 15 years before the first world war, baseball in America was largely a participatory sport. So it was largely semi-pro teams. Maybe you would recruit a guy and he would work in a factory and then he would play ball on the weekends, but it was towns playing against each other. That was the normal shape of the sport. There was of course, professional baseball, but people didn't primarily watch people they would never talk to play the sport. That wasn't the primary way this happened. So that's something to think about for the future. He gets recruited out of his small town and his family doesn't really understand this because the idea that you would just play baseball all the time as a grown man, they were like, is that really, is that something a grown man does? (laughs) (laughs) So he gets recruited out of small town, Pennsylvania. This is also part of my just deep nostalgic attachment to this. I'm just, you know, just being totally upfront. And he gets recruited to play for the New York Giants. They don't exist anymore. They're now the San Francisco Giants, same colors, uh, even same font, just different city. And he's going to play for the New York Giants. He won't play on Sunday. Amazing player. And there's a wonderful book that if the listeners are at all interested just in Americana, not necessarily in baseball. It's called The Glory of Their Times. And they are interviews done with baseball players from about 1900 to, I think the last one might be Hank Greenberg. So that's kind of mid-1940s. Hank Greenberg goes off and fights in World War II. In the 1960s, this guy traveled around. And the, the things they described, the life they described, the way people were, the way people interacted, how almost trusting and informal everyday life was, is really just kind of amazing. And, and also a little heartbreaking to see, you know, but Matthewson was not directly interviewed because he died in the early 1920s because like most certainly stars, they felt it incumbent upon them if America was in a war to volunteer for that war. So he volunteers, he is an infantry officer and he is gassed on the Western front in 1918, along with many others. I had a, a, a great, great uncle, Frank Raymond, who was also gassed and died about the same time that Matthewson did because they survive. I want to say it was mustard gas that they inhale. They come back to, the, to America. They have this lung condition that is somewhat similar to tuberculosis, or if you've ever had somebody that was dying that had a lot of fluid on their lungs, And this is not terribly treatable at that time. A lot of people would move to like Arizona or Colorado or something to see if they could get better. Matthewson can't do that. He's trying to play professional baseball in the Northeast. And so he dies a couple of years later. And to me, the the sadness always was, and I've probably been sad about this as long as I've known the guy's name, but the sadness to me was he was doing something so really innocent, playing ball. And if you pick up this book, The Glory of Their Times, both the guys that played with him and the guys that played against him said, we would have done anything for that guy. <laughs> he was just, just sort of a ray of human sunshine, inspired people, fantastic, just a great human being, right? Went to church like he was taught to, right? Gave up paychecks to go to church. And he dies, I mean, for what? the integrity of Belgian territory, <laughs> you know, it just, um, when you think about things like that, you're like, I, I, I at least want to die. Think about how Jesus talks about this for greater love has no man this, that he would lay down his life 
not for the integrity of Belgian territory, but for his friends. Hmm. And then uniquely in John's gospel, where he says that calls his disciples, not just his disciples or his servants, he calls them. I have not called you servants, but I've called you friends. So that understanding of friendship, which Matthewson was exemplifying before Woodrow Wilson decided we need to go to war. That's something that whether or not we do go to war is what I think is necessary above all, both in war and out of war, is that if that doesn't exist, and you called it earlier brotherhood, I think that that is definitely part of it. If that doesn't exist, there really is nothing worth fighting for, either literally or metaphorically. Because, I, I mean, I could fight, I could maintain the integrity of my home. You know, I could, uh, I, could, I could claim the castle doctrine defense for how I defend my home. But that's not, that's not really a polity. That's not even a local church, let alone a nation. I have to have some sense of friendship or, or, or kinship or amity, some desire to achieve a common purpose with people to fight for them. And, and if I have that, then I not only have something, something actually shining to fight for, but I also have something pleasant and wonderful about my everyday life. Because struggle is really different if you're doing it with other people than if you're doing it by yourself. And, you know, Matthewson was exemplifying that you know, I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but he was playing baseball and he was a great guy to play baseball with, <laughs> you know, and he was, he was a good officer and all of that was taken away, you know? So that, that friendship, you do have to ask yourself, what kind of causes are you going to be involved in and, and what are you going to get sucked into? But, but once you're in them, you, you do have to have friends because without that, I'm, I'm not sure that it's worth anything. That's all really, really good stuff. Um, what kind of causes? So if I'm, if I'm reading my own theology's quandary, right? Yeah. This is still for me as a, an emblematic LCMSer, a problem to do with just war and, or the question, am I allowed to fight? And, and if so, um, when, because it seems like our theology, our spirituality is only allowed to fight on the back foot and then sort of pull in the punch because mm-hmm. it might be mean to do otherwise. And this is what yeah. I was trying to get earlier with the left too. Like the left's like, don't go to war because it's wrong. That'll stop him. Like, well, no, that like that won't stop him. Like you, you have to stop him. And so um, where does that fit into our theology? Because again, um, and, you know, we, we've t- talked about pacifism and violence a little bit in the past. I think we're going to have to do it more. Um, there is a very strong enlightenment Christianity that kind of says, you know, you can live without this. You can live without violence. You need to live without violence. That's what Jesus taught you to do is live without violence. And um, what you're describing here is a very realistic view of the world in which, no, you can't live without violence, not because you are pursuing right. violence for its own cause, um, but because the world is violent and right. because you have yeah. brothers who you love. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Vi- violence, violence is necessary on this earth because love exists. If, 
you could be or were or are apathetic about something, violence is unthinkable. I always think of pacifists are simply, or people who are apathetic are simply people who are dead while still living. They have no pulse. And so there's nothing worth fighting for. If you are alive or, or, or a life is something worth defending, then of course you will engage in some kind of warfare, little, literal or metaphorical, because you have something to fight for. Just war theory is unfortunately not integrated into the way that legally the American state thinks about violence. So I would have to, in order to, if I needed to get out of a draft, I would just have to tell them I'm a pacifist. I couldn't give some sort of nuanced, like, you know, justification, or you don't have a justification for this war. You have no congressional declaration of war, or, you know, this is not a legitimate defense or something. Our state doesn't really recognize that. So Lutherans, also Catholics, Presbyterians would want to, if they wanted to exercise their own political interest and ensure that the future of their communities, even if we had a draft, I think it unlikely, but I'm just throwing this out there, would want to exercise some sort of recognition of our theory of war, where the individual conscience can say, I will not participate in this because this is unjust. Okay. I mean, the issue here is, I think, deeper than simply just war theory. And it is a recognition that warfare in the service of good things is not a vice. It can lead to vices. There can be dangers. You could get sucked into doing things that are wicked because there's part of you, there's a part of you that even when you're doing the right thing, loves to do it in a wicked manner. But warfare in a good cause is not a vice simply because something is unpleasant does not mean that it's vicious. So that is a perspective we have to become more acquainted with. And that is, will also be the way will be made smoother for that perspective. When we understand what is at stake. I think the reason that any of us have ever found pacifism engaging is because we had no sense of what was really at stake because when your life is at stake, you will fight back. I don't know that I've ever found it engaging on an idealistic front. I think mm -hmm. it's just sort of, it was in the water. Um, you know, it just was assumed and or pressed into me in first grade sort of thing. And you definitely got in trouble if you got in a fight, right? So like, like <laughs> can't we sit down and talk this out? Um, to to know that, at least in, in film and in novels, and Tolkien again being a great example, you have these good men who are warriors who are able to glory in the war. Of course, they're fighting orcs, right? So, so suddenly it's all okay because mm -hmm. they're monstrous beasties. But um, this idea, that, I mean, it's, it's also the, the medieval chivalry concept. Um, that they're, uh, and this gets to something I've said just recently in a sermon too. And, and I think it's just so imperative. Like we've forgotten that the wicked aren't going to be saved. I'm not, no, you know, I'm not saying that God doesn't convert the sinner. He does, but there's this wide path leading to destruction with the wicked on it. And like, they're going to stay there like most of yeah. them. And, and then they're going to do wicked things. And those wicked things aren't going to be just calling you me names on Twitter, right? They're going to be truly moving toward, well, the sacrifice of infants, uh, the destruction of people groups, things like that. And so without men who are able to say, 
our glory is to put our foot down and say no, yeah. get in the way. Um, we're just going to be their slaves. Uh, and again, I feel like at at some point, the spirituality of respectability within the Lutheran American ethos is like, yeah, well, then we'll be slaves and it'll be okay because that's what Jesus would ask us to do. And 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 you're saying something very different, right? Yeah. But it yeah it doesn't mesh with like the. It's not, it's not about the argument. It's about the spirit of the thing somehow. And I'm not trying to yeah. accuse you of having the wrong spirit. I think we do. I think we do. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I believe that that, that spirit is built by ignorance and it's, it's an ignorance of things that have actually occurred. It's an ignorance of people getting gassed on the Western front and then trying to come home and only having really two or three years to live, but not knowing that and, and hoping that they've done the right thing. And it's an ignorance of, the wars that we have prosecuted in American history for our actual survival, especially in frontier situations. It's, it's an ignorance of how often we have been lied to. And so as we, we move on and we talk about other things that are not war, strictly speaking, this is not something that we should forget because it's in war that you get an intensification of all that is best and all that is worst in mankind. So you see certain things far more clearly in the case of war about human nature, which is obviously the great thing under debate. Does a human being need certain vaccines in order to continue living? Does a human being have a determinate sex or not? Is a human being biologically determined in any way or not? These are the lively questions, right? The heresies of our time are not generally, or at least not directly heresies about God, they're heresies about man, God's, God's creature. So what you can draw from understanding people's experiences in war generally and in combat specifically are certain things that are just simply more pointed in those places and cases than in other parts of life where these things get blurrier and people believe, well, maybe war will never happen again, which was a great hope that was nursed in many Western countries after the first world war. So these are things that we don't want to forget as we go on and we talk about, you know, Spanish flu and where that came from. It wasn't Spain surprise and depression and, and other things about the 1920s that are, I think really fascinating the growth of financial speculation alongside the growth of investment banking. So all of that is going to be at least for me, a lot of fun, but the stuff that we've talked about today really should not and cannot be forgotten at that time because the lessons that people like Tolkien, people like Junger, also, unfortunately, people like Christy Matthewson learned in war are lessons that they themselves never forgot. So it comes back to, I think, then recognizing that we're in a survival scenario already. I wrote on Mad Mondays this past week about fifth generation warfare. And, you know, World War One is second generation where you move from the historic first generation that had been most of human history. You line up and you, you fight. And World War One suddenly they're digging ditches, you know, changing. You got to hide. Um, yeah. Fifth generation gets past the stealth of fourth generation insurgency into the all out. Every civilian is a combatant by means of information control. And that if you don't, we talked about this with the Ukraine already. If you don't pick mm -hmm. a side, you're wrong already. Right. You got to mm -hmm. don't just have to mm -hmm. pick a side. You have to pick the right side. And if not, then you're the enemy and we're going to um, take away from you in some way, shape or form, if only your respectability. Um, so to see that we are combatants in a war for the survival of Christianity, right, of Christianity 
in this place. Uh, we must adopt that mentality and that, that understanding, uh, or we are going to be swept away. And this is what I think does. There are a lot of people who think this, um, and then we get disheartened that there's not more who think this. Um, it doesn't mean run around yelling at everybody. Right. Um, but, but it does mean, <laughs> uh, it does mean, um, uh, pulling up the britches, right. And, yeah. and, and believing that, uh, if no one else is there to lead, then, then you got to lead yourself. Um, but that you're not going to lead alone. Right. So how do you become the guy who, in this phrase you mentioned about Matthewson, right? Like I would do anything for that guy. Like, how do you become mm-hmm. that guy? right? That people would do anything for. And, and not because you want them to do anything for you. That's not how you become that guy. It's like, you know, I'm going to figure out how to get people to do stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That no, was Jeffrey like, Epstein, not yeah, Christy right, Matthewson. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but like, no, but, but Matthewson, the, he, he became endearing to people because of how he was. He treated others well. He saw yeah. their need. He pursued the good of them. Yeah. And for us, uh, post-2020, Christian males waking up out of the matrix of entertainment, I think a lot of us are still too socially awkward to really be anybody's friend. Um, and and tr- I'm, I'm honestly, uh, sure, so, yeah, sure, so sure. you know, it starts with some awareness of that. And again, yeah. um, knowing who your yeah. real enemy is and the stakes that we're in, that, that we are on the verge of having no place on this continent. And if we just kind of do business as usual, we're going yeah. to be sucked into, can I say, the German Christian movement, um, you know, the same way that the churches in, in Germany were during uh, the Nazi regime. They just they just took you over. They just took you over um, intellectually. Yeah. yeah. And I think intellectually, we, we have been subjugated for a long time. This is, I mean, this is partly why I do this podcast, but partly also some of the things, some of which is still, as we record this, at least developing, but that I'm I'm looking to do is not only to come alongside some of the wonderful stuff that the Trinity in Denver is already doing with a homeschool co-op and and things like that, but also because they offered space and and support for something that has been really my my heart's desire from from the first, which is to enable the the planting of new Lutheran congregations throughout the United States because my great desire is that, Christ would reclaim his sovereignty over our nation openly and visibly. And um, that's what I want to further. That's, that's a cause for which I am, I am more than willing to die. And that is the very thing I'm trying to achieve now by his, by his spirit's power. So those things are, yeah, they are big things, but I, I think that we are looking at, two very stark alternatives. And this is this is where Junger and, and the Storm of Steel are helpful and the descriptions of combat are helpful. The stark alternatives are either that we aspire and we dare and we not only survive, but we actually thrive in difficulty or we become dead or live or dead while living. That we either cease to exist at all or we become spiritual insects worthy to be crushed underfoot. And I saw a lot of insects being born over the past two years, and I don't want to be one. So these are the things that we're looking at and, and, and the things that we are beginning to dare by God's grace. And I, I think it's going to be wonderful. You know, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be absolutely wonderful. And those are the kinds of things that 
I, I would I would rather, you know, Junger, maybe the listeners don't know, his writing is wonderful, even in English, even in translation. But I would I would certainly rather be Tolkien than unfortunately Christy Mathewson, who who dies for who knows what, but because he thought he was supposed to. And ends up as as a shining example of really a kind of a, a bright sadness. And that may be that that's up to the Lord, right? Uh, the future is always in the Lord's hands and not in ours. Man proposes, God disposes, my my Yankee ancestors said. But I would rather be Tolkien if I can help it than anyone else. <laughs> because he leaves so much that is wonderful and and still inspiring to people long afterward. And you know, so th- these are options that we have when we know the history that can, that can lead us into the future. The thing about, <clears throat> excuse me, the voice is gone. Uh, uh, to try to wrap it up with this phrase yeah. and, and not really knowing how to say it in a quippy and catchy way, building off what you just said and what I said prior about realizing your war and standing up. Yeah. What's inspiring in those books is the men who take ownership of their place, but do so also knowing that they must follow. And the return of the king, without question, is an emblem that hearkens and enlightens all of them in yeah. that final battle. Yep. So for you, listener, where you are, if you're like me, trying to get a grip on whatever is going on in this madness around you, there is simply no question that remembering that you you don't just kind of metaphorically have a king. You actually have a king. Yeah. And it's your job to kneel before him. That'll change the battlefield immediately. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. <laughs>